Because pigs are so versatile in, in, in terms of ease of using all of the cuts, it's probably one of the bigger animals that you can get whole or close to whole into the restaurant. When you get to beef or, or lamb, it's a little bit hard, but pork seems to be right on the tinkering edge where you can, where you can manage to, to work with it to get it on the plate um, and order it in nearly whole. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. After buying a large property in the Hunter near his award-winning restaurant, Troy Rhodes-Brown started growing vegetables, housing chickens, and soon enough fulfilled a long-time dream of having his own pigs. Although he'd always had great connections with local pig producers, the personal experience of raising pigs has been life-changing. Troy, you're recognised as one of Australia's best chefs, but I understand that you're getting some pigs on the property to raise at home yeah i am um so i um i think the first every house that i've i've lived at i've kind of outgrown um the size of it due to the veggie garden and um so we i got a one acre property at bawara heights about seven years ago and um built a big stand-up veggie garden down the side there and it was wonderful but it ended up being a little bit too far away from work and the commute and late nights was a little bit too long so i found um what was and what is my absolute dream house and dream property up here just outside it just in brankston up on a hill and um it's about five and a half acres it's a couple of different fenced paddocks and um yeah so when i moved here the wannabe farmer in me wanted to um fill it with animals and um obviously one step at a time chickens i was comfortable already growing so i had about 15 of them um in a in a special paddock so i've got a beautiful chicken coop and there's a little door that opens up in the morning a little electric door that opens up in a morning in the morning at 7 a.m and then they spill out into a a one acre run that they've got there and they've got a beehive in there now as well and um there was a paddock down the back there's a paddock down the back of the house which was perfect for pigs and um I love pigs, love the animal themselves and um, so inquisitive and I was inquisitive about them and owning and owning and um, managing them. So um, I got some, I got the fencing around that tightened up a little bit and I got um, um, fixed to the best of what I thought um, was suitable for pigs <laughs> and um, went to looked up building a pig shelter on um, on YouTube one night, went to Bunnings the next day without measuring a thing and bought a heap of timber, random lots of timber, and um, came back here and spelt, spent the day with a, with a drill and a hammer putting together this pig shelter, which it's still standing three and a half, four years later proudly because I'm not a super handy guy. And um, so I skull dragged it down there on the tractor and put it in the paddock and the pigs actually shuffled it around to face the right direction that they wanted under a tree and it stayed there. Wow. Um, and, yeah, so I got the paddock ready and then I went over to a local farm and picked out two little baby suckling Wessex. They were about eight, ten kilos at the time. Super cute. Put them in a cage. Drove them over here with the Ute with the kids, and we um we put them in the back paddock, and that was um the first proper animals I ever had here, and absolutely loved it. What a what a bloody experience! Like from start to finish, really enjoyed it. Um, so they grow super fast until they get to probably about the 
60 or 70 kilo weight, I think. And then they kind of slowed down a little bit. That might be a little bit due – that might be because of the breed. They're Wessex Saddlebacks, which is a beautiful heritage breed, but they – they seem to put on fat a little bit different to some of the other breeds. They're a little bit longer and a little bit shallower in their like in their rib cage. Yeah, they've got a little rise on the back of their neck. And then the Berkshires, when they get a bit bigger, they become shorter and fatter and a little bit more rotund. But the, the Wessex seem to cap the fat instead of marbling it as much. Um, but so they they um, they grew fast. So we would every morning we would take all the vegetable all the vegetable off cuts and scraps from the restaurants down there in milk crates. It's about an eighty meter walk. So when you try to carry four milk crates in the morning, it's it's almost it's almost your workout for the day getting it down there. And um, and then any and then, so they would eat the vegetable scraps from the restaurant. Um, had some grain supplements down there for them as well in a big barrel. And then anything in the veggie garden that was getting to the end of season, like old turnips and stuff like that, would get pulled out and thrown to them. And then I've got this big macadamia tree, which is just on the side of the fence there. Um, it's probably about 25, 30 foot tall. And then um, when the macadamias fell, you could just pick them up and throw them over the fence. And you'd never see anything eat whole nuts like these animals. But... So they, there's two, two hardened shells to a macadamia until you get to the actual edible nut themselves and they would crunch the outer nut, crunch the inner nut and then get the beautiful meat out of the centre of it wow. and spit everything else out and, and, and continue to do that. Like if I, if I t- chucked them like 10 or 15 kilos of nuts, they could stand there and get through them in, in half an hour. Incredible. Just incredible. So they were very, very well-fed pigs, and um, off the back of my place, there's a there's a pecan orchard with about 450 trees down there, and they processed some nuts one year, and they were too small to go through the nut cracking machine. So um, Chris and Carolyn brought them up to me, and I had 140 kilos of pecan nuts to feed them as well. Um, so I gave them a 10 kilo bag once every week or two to eat, which they was just so. So well looked after, you know, they ate well, they had the best bloody view in the Hunter Valley and, um, oh, they were just, they were just lovely and friendly and um, I really made sure that um, the kids were a part of it, getting in there and helping feed them, um, going down and patting them when they were young. So by the time they got big, um, real big, I felt comfortable with the kids going in with them and, um it was wonderful. I made sure I was patting them a lot when they were eating, when they were young, so they were comfortable. And then by the end, um, Lulu and Daisy were – Daisy was the biggest. She was definitely the alpha female out of them. Um, she was about 185 – between 185 and maybe 195 kilos at about the three-year mark. And I could send my girl Edie – she would have been three and a half, four um, – in there – in her gumboots, and when when Daisy was eating something, to walk in there and walk up and hold her, or hug her, or rub her on the tummy, or scratch her jowl, and um, and feel comfortable with it. So it was a wonderful experience. And they were pets, which was like the double-edged sword as well. You know, they had names. They were a part of the family, and then um, they were always going to be processed. But um, obviously, it was it was it was a hard day when that day came. That's for sure. You mentioned the amazing diet that they had and the size that they got to and the inevitability of them being processed. What what, what was it like um, eating them and what was the eating quality like given the life they had? 
oh, the, 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 the eating quality was excellent. The, the, the day we process them, I had always, the kids had always known that they were going to be, going to be killed for food. It was a part of a learning process for them. And it was a part of a process for me being okay to, um, eat them. It was a big thing. It was a big thing. Very hard, very hard to do, but like, um, so the day that we did it, we, we, we did it here, um, I had a local butcher, uh, come over and help me and, um, shot them, shot them in the head and then rolled them over and bled them out. And then we tied them up to a big spotted, uh, spotted gum here and winched them up. And, um, I help clean them. You can't keep the skin on pigs at all when they're that big, especially heritage or black skin pigs. The hair goes right into the skin. <clears throat> so it's quite difficult to get nice crackling off what, what, what's classed a salubi pig. And we um, uh, we processed them here at home and I was planning to get all of it done before I had to pick the kids up from school, um, which is at 2.30, and it just took a little bit longer than I was hoping. <laughs> we were still going on the second one um, when it happened. And I remember, like, I had chewing gum in my mouth that day, and I was so stressed and it was so hard on me to do it, but I knew it was important to do, that I pulled a filling out of my tooth. I was chewing on the chewing gum that hard. <laughs> And um, <clears throat> I went to pick the kids up from school and we still had um, Lulu up um, str- um, skinning her and I was bringing the kids home and as I was coming up the street, the kids fell asleep, which I was like, this is perfect because I was going to try and navigate just seeing where the where my friend was at with it and see if we could get them down to the butcher shop without them realising. So I rocked up and the kids had fallen asleep. So I was like, okay, I'm going to drive the ute in the back paddock, sneak in there and get, get – um, Daisy in the back of the ute and down to this cool room um, before they wake up. Anyways, Daisy was too big to fit in the tray of the ute. She was too long as as a carcass to get in. So um, we were there, um, cut her in half to get her in the ute and wrap her up. And Hudson woke up and looked in the rear vision mirror of the car and could see something. And she said to me, oh, Dad, what's that? And then he fell back asleep straight away. Uh, didn't realise, and anyways, we took them down there, got them in the butcher shop, and um, then that's when the kids understood what had happened. They didn't see it, but that's they understood what had happened, and then that was the time when we, we divided the pork up and figured out how we were going to use it all. And, um, yeah, so we, we I used everything. I didn't save their blood for, for blood sausage. That was a bit much for me on the first, on the first round. But um, I've had a meat fridge here at home. Um, and I'd done a couple of practice runs in there, like a salumi fridge. So I had a friend make it from a, a big old glass door refrigerator from an old budding shop, and we we cleaned it out, and we um, we cleaned it out, and um, we got a humidifier in, and and did a couple of test runs in there. We put a big pole in that can hold up to 150 kilos of produce. And the first two project, the first two runs in it were a fail, and I couldn't figure out why. I had the humidity at eighty, had the degrees set at sixteen degrees. The environment was right; it was sterile. But what happened was there's a fluorescent light up the side of the fridge that was too close to the temperature gauge, and there was a little bit of heat coming off that um, light, and it was throwing everything out. So two failures, and then I had it running really well by the time Lulu and Daisy were ready for the fridge. So, um, yeah, and we made, we made um, Quanchali, we made copper, we made copper colo. I used some of the pecan shells to, to smoke some cured bacon from it. 
Um, yeah, and I feel and I filled the fridge, and I've actually still got one of the um, Colatellos in here, which must be about two years old now that I haven't opened up and had a look at. So I'm excited to see that. But in terms of the eating quality of it, um, not it's not it's a salumi pig that big is not exactly great if you just like barbecue a loin and try and eat it because they are older animals and they've lived a big life but in in terms of the flavor profile of the salumi outrageous outrageous just beautiful i mean well for me the standout of the whole of the whole animal was was the copper was the cured neck and the the way the flavor developed past the six month the eight month the 12 month and now you know 18 months nearly two years i've still got some of the copper left is insane it is like it is so similar to some of the best some of the best cured meats i've had anywhere around the world in any of my travels it's really beautiful so that's probably one of my biggest successes and Obviously, we can't use it in the restaurant, which has been a shame. But um, what I have done is I took a couple of pieces in there. Whenever I had friends and family and and, um, and chefs come in, I would always send them out a little complimentary um, board of some of my house-made cures from Lulu and Daisy and um, go out and introduce it as Daisy, you know, which is cool. And you've got a couple of more um pigs on the way i understand yeah i just had i've got to fix the fencing a little bit once they got so big they just they just they're so strong and just when they're snouting under the fence they can they can they can move a rail move a post sorry so i'm going to get a little electric wire this time and try that but um and then try rotating them into another side paddock with a dam on it and um in the meantime i've got some alpacas for the main the main back paddock which have been fun you mentioned that you couldn't use the meat to sell in the restaurant, but um, but you do get whole pigs in and you work with a local butcher and share that. Can you tell us about that connection that you have? Yeah, so well, we always try and – pigs are probably because, – because pigs are so versatile in, in, in terms of ease of using all of the cuts or majority of the cuts, it's probably one of the bigger animals that you can get um whole or close to whole into the restaurant like obviously all most good restaurants would be using you know whole poultry whole fish and we all find pretty way pretty pretty easy ways to navigate using every bit of of those things and then when you get into the bigger stuff it's hard sometimes to use whole lamb hard especially in a fine dining restaurant where the expectation is you know that that level of um consistency in terms of what's on the plate um, portion size and, and cuts and that. So um, when you get to a when you get to beef or, or lamb, it's a little bit hard. But pork seems to be right on the tinkering edge where you can where you can manage to to work with it to get it on the plate um, and order it in nearly whole. So usually when we use it on the menu, we um, we get the whole trunk with the shoulders on and sometimes the head if we can. And then I had a relationship with um, I have a relationship with one of the butchers. It's just not on the menu at the moment. We'll probably come back this this autumn, but where he would save the back legs for Christmas ham, and then we would get everything else. So the big the back legs are a big thing to deal with in the restaurant, and everything else the shoulder, the neck, um, the, and the whole barrel being the belly and the loin um, was was great. So the way we the way we found it. Um, worked really well on the menu was <clears throat> we would um, usually take the fat capping off, save the best pieces of that for lardo for another dish, um, and then the neck we would cure 
and uh, make copper for maybe our first course, which I'll talk to you about that uh, in a sec. And then we would use the loin and would barbecue the loin, uh, would salt bake the belly whole, and then all of the offcuts and the trim we would make a cottuccino sausage out of. So the, the skin to make cottuccino sausage, the way we did it, we, we braise the skin until it was like tender and gelatinous and then you chill it down and then you um, mince um, parts of the belly, parts of the neck, um, parts, of fa- parts of fat and then the off cuts from the shoulders. And then we added things like star. And instead of white wine and the traditional flavours, it was a bit of a Japanese dish that we were doing at the time. So we used sake, anise myrtle from home, and um, obviously garlic has to be in there, and made a cottuccino sausage. And then we would cook it, um, slow cook it, age it in the cool room, and then portion it and finish it over the wood fire. So the way that all came together on the menu was it would be, for one night, it would be salt-baked pork belly with cottuccino sausage and the, 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 the vegetable that we served the dish with. And then when we ran out of the salt-baked belly, we would go onto the wood-fired loin. So we managed to use the whole animal um, apart from the ribs, which we always say for staffies. So get the barbecue <laughs> ribs for staffies. And then the, the neck, which we turned into copper, we will continue to cure and age and would bank that up until we had enough to run a dish. And then we would run the dish with the copper as well and always make stock and stock and broth and soups out of the bones. So it's very effective way to use it. It was great. Muse is one of Australia's most awarded regional restaurants and one of Australia's best restaurants. Um, you're, you're always so busy doing so many things um, from scratch outside the restaurant and in the restaurant. Where does this drive uh, come from for you? Because you never do anything by halves. I think, um, I think I've figured out at a certain period of running Muse <clears throat> that um, balance for myself um, in turn means balance for the team and it also means... Um, keeping the drive and the passion strong for myself. So I've particularly put myself in the position in and around the restaurant that I really enjoy. Um, if, I, if I am someone that's going to say, hey, I'm going to own a restaurant for 15 or 20 years and I'm going to do the same thing, um, you'd need to stay in love with the same thing. So for me, I, I keep doing things that I'm highly interested in that are involving the restaurant. And that's that so like a to give you an idea maybe a particular day for me would be you know i drop the kids off at school at eight o'clock i'll come home i'll knock out a few emails and have a few coffees um do bits and pieces of things that i need to do like online for the restaurant and then i'll jump out in the vegetable garden and i'll be i'll be doing things in the garden in around the house that i really enjoy and i the chefs like the sous chef and the head chef send me the pick list the day before and I'll pick everything that I need to. And then on the way to pick up the kids at 2.30, I'll drop the phone, I'll drop all the um, fruit and veg pick in phone boxes to the restaurant, to the guys, Have the ki- bring the kids back here in the afternoon. We'll do our thing, you know, where we go around and we do bits and pieces, whether it, you know, we have a balance there, you know, balance between iPad and PlayStation to yabby hunting and yabby fishing and, you know, gumboots down by the dam and picking nuts and doing all that stuff. And then I'm at work with the team from five o'clock until about midnight or one in the morning. And um, that's pretty much a regular day. I don't like to miss services because it's my, my favorite part. Um, but I, but, I continue to do things that I enjoy, like 
being in the garden in the morning or being in the garden outside is good headspace for me and it's good thinking time. Being doing some office work at home with the place I love to be, I enjoy that. And then being with the team during service and I love that so much as well. So making sure that I'm, I'm always in the, in the, in the tears of the, of the restaurant that, that keep me super passionate. You started your career at an Italian restaurant in Newcastle. Can you take us back to those days, what it was like being an apprentice? Yeah, so I, I started my apprenticeship when I was 16. Um, I think I was always interested in doing something creative, something with my hands. I was, I was interested in being a carpenter or a tech drawer, and I loved the idea of being an architect or, or cooking. Those were my three things and actually didn't get those three choices going into year 11 for my HSC. Um, so I decided to leave and mum wouldn't let me leave the same story until I had a job and I got a job in an old Italian, a very old Italian restaurant called Pasquale's and it was at Merriweather, Newcastle and, um, Pasquale was at the end of his career. So he was 62 or 63, um, and he had run a very successful Italian restaurant in Beaumont Street, Newcastle called the Italian Centre for many years. And then this was a pair back and it was a little bit more fancy, a little bit more fine dining and it was, um, Basically, him and the immediate family were the only staff there. It was his wife and his daughter that ran the floor, himself and just me in the kitchen, and a Yugoslavian kitchen hand named Eva, who was um, about 60 years old as well. So <laughs> it was very close. And, and the landlord was Bruno upstairs, who was straight Italian as well. So basically, I never like I went in for this job interview at 16 and he showed me around the kitchen. He told me things and, and I had to call back and speak to his wife to see if I got the job because I didn't understand a bloody word he was saying to me the whole time <laughs> I was there. And um, yeah, it was, it was a wonderful experience. The food was simple, but, but it was the, the values to the family-owned restaurant and, and what they had done and, and um, the people that they were was lovely. They brought me in. I was a part of that family. And um, we had a great relationship and I spent now two or three years there. And, um, yeah, I, re- I, really, I really enjoyed my time there. But um, in terms of I was at TAFE at the time and I knew that a lot of other guys were doing a lot of different things and everyone was talking about – Everyone was talking about, oh, another one, one quick funny story about Pasquale was he used to ride his push bike in between our breaks. So we used to do split shifts and um, there would be about a one and a half hour, two hour break. And I, as soon as I was on my break, I would, I would grab my bodyboard and leg it down to um, Merriweather and get a surf off the rocks quickly and come back for dinner service. And he would like to go on his push bike, on his road bike. And... Um, so he'd get to about 2.30, 3 o'clock, and if it was looking quiet, he'd go out the back and get in his riding spikes and his lycra, 63-year-old <laughs> Italian man with a pot belly. And then Sue would come into the kitchen and say, oh, one of the regulars had just turned up for lunch. So he would swear a little bit in Italian. Then you would stand there over the stove in his lycra and cook the last <laughs> two orders in his, in, his, in, his, in his bike spikes as well and, um, and then go on his ride. But everyone was talking about Robert's Restaurant <clears throat> at the time. That seemed to be the place to be. And, you know, it was a tourist-based a tourist based area, so this big influx of people coming down, a lot of Sydney-siders and international guests, and, and it had a little bit of a platform and had a name. And, and um, so I just went, that's exactly what I wanted to do. So I went and had an interview with Robert, and I got the job. And walking in the back kitchen, into that kitchen the first day, uh, it was a it was a real moment for me. I didn't realize I realized how much I didn't know about food, and and I realized how much 
um, how much there was out there to walk in. I walked into this kitchen. It was this huge, big brigade of busy chefs and and um, ingredients going on that I hadn't seen before. You know, there was vongolai getting braised. There was, you know, charcuterie section and, and whole animals getting butchered. And there was Verdon over in the pastry section pinning out butter puff, listening to NWA. And, like, it was just this culture and and it was such a great restaurant at the time. And looking back at looking back at my time at Roberts, I need to think about it and talk about it a little bit more so I re- continue to remember how special it was. Robert, Robert and Sally owned a restaurant, run that restaurant so beautifully. And Robert is a is an amazing man. Like he's 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 such this juggle between he's such this juggle between love and passion and that traditional old French like volatility like he's there's everything in Robert and he's a mixed bag but love love comes first with that man and um he kind of took me under his wing there um and I was known in the kitchen for that four years as lovely boy because I I never really I didn't make too many mistakes which kept my kept my kept my head out of um, from getting in trouble which was good but I think I went in there and I knew that I at the time I walked through that door and spent a few days there I knew that I didn't know much and I knew that I, and I didn't have an ego and I really wanted to learn everything and take responsibility off the guys above me and um and it's and it put me in a good stead and I, I got some really good responsibility in that kitchen and I learned a lot and I got to see a lot and uh it was just a beautiful place. It was a beautiful place, like awards and and all the, and the chef hats and that. It was never. I don't. Well, he didn't even have a chef hat at the time, but the it was never spoken about. Um, it was never spoken about. It was the restaurant and the restaurant model that was such a success in terms of the experience that it gave. It was almost timeless. But um, yeah, the menu was too bloody big. The menu was huge. Like. Um, each section had, I think we had like eight, eight entrees, eight to ten main course, and it was six, six to seven desserts. And there was all Robert was always ordering um, different fresh, bulk different set fresh seafood in and stuff for specials. There'd always be something turning up at the back door, whether it be you know ten suckling pigs and um, lots going on all of the time. And um, yeah, it was great. It was great, but it was it was a place of many memories. That's for sure. One of the um, bits of tragic news over the last year was the closure of the Ledbury in the UK. But you uh, you won the two thousand and five Brett Graham Scholarship and got to spend some time over at the Ledbury. What, what was that experience like? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, it was it was wonderful. I did a I only did a stage there because it was something that uh, my wife Megan and I at the time didn't want to move overseas. Like it wasn't. We didn't want to. We didn't want to leave the Hunter Valley, really. Um, but this was a great opportunity to go over and, and see what was happening. And I'd already looked up to Brett and what he had done and what he was doing. Um, and although Robert was my mentor in cooking, I think I, when I went over there and walked in that back kitchen, at the library, it was very. I think it was one Michelin star at the time, pushing for two, and it was very raw, um, hard kitchen. Um, but Brett's drive was something that I'd never seen before in that place. And for me, what I took away from my time there was how much he had achieved for his age, what he had done, he had stepped out. And he worked for every bit of it. He was never given anything. Like he was a Newcastle boy, apprentice at Scratchley's, and he was never given anything. He had worked for everything. Um, and um, I came back 
from Europe thinking, you know, this guy was, he was like 20, 25 or something, running his own Michelin star restaurant in London. And that for me was enough um, confidence to make me start thinking about um, owning my own restaurant in the area as well. So it was a, it was a great place, very hard. But You opened Muse in uh, 2009 and it's won so many accolades and a really important restaurant for the region. Uh, what's it, tell us about the last decade or so and how how you've delivered a regional restaurant at such a level and, and how it's changed you. Mm. Um, well, we, when we were looking for a restaurant, Megan and I um, decided to look for a restaurant. Um, uh, I was 23. Uh, she's a couple of years older and um, we were looking for a small restaurant, a 30 or a 40-seater, I remember, you know, just on a small on a back road here in Impercolvin somewhere, somewhere where we had manageable um, overheads and where, you know, us being, her being running the floor, me running the kitchen, we could bear the brunt of a lot of the wage costs and absorb a lot in terms of being a small business. You know, we, you do so much as business owners if it's a small, small business. Um, so that's what we were looking for. We were looking at two venues at the time and then um, Muse Restaurant, well, it wasn't called Muse Restaurant, sorry, it was called Tewa at the time and it was um, at Hungerfield Complex Estate, sorry, and I'd found out for the first time it was going to be leased out. It was always owned and operated by the owner and we went and had a look and I remember walking into there and um, the place was massive and so freaking scary um just the size of the kitchen just the size of the dining room the red wine cellar the private dining room like the place is beautiful and massive but it was scary in terms of thinking that it would be something that i should be taking on um we should be taking on sorry but we we spoke about it and we were young enough that if we made a mistake and it didn't work out we could bounce back um, but also when you're that young and you don't know that much about business, there's a little bit of naivety there for sure. But, um, and we did go into that without enough business knowledge. That's 100% correct, but it's how you absorb and learn and, and, and um, uh, how, you, how, how you learn from the mistakes and how quickly you learn from the mistakes. Um, and we thought, let's just give it a go. And, and um uh, and we did. So we opened Muse Restaurant there in 2009. It was on my 24th birthday and um, a, a huge undertaking. And that was, a, that was a part of my life where I became extremely – like I was always responsible and, and um, I was always a responsible person, but the weight on my shoulders, on our shoulders at that age was a lot and I became very, very um, – I felt like no matter what, wherever I was in my life, I was always representing inside of work, outside of work to the nth degree. And like, it was, it was a lot of stress for a young chef, um, to take on something like that. Um, it took a long while. There was, there was cash flow issues at the start, but we knew that, that we knew and understood the importance of making the customers happy. Um, and, and the experience that we were providing was on track. We knew that people coming in were really enjoying it. As a chef, I was young and I didn't have my own style at that point. I had done Italian and French food, and I was interested in doing, you know, what was what we all what was called contemporary Australian, or just doing our own thing, doing your own thing, and that takes time. So, you know, we would do. Uh, there was a lot of French cooking foundation to the food, and still is a little bit, but. 
Um, but finding myself in the kitchen, running a team completely on myself by myself whilst trying to manage a big business um, was a lot. But we, God, we did a good job. I mean, after eighteen months, when we knew that when we knew that the the dollars were turning around and the and obviously the guest satisfaction was already there, it was just like. Yeah, it was a it was the most proudest thing that I've one of the most proudest things that we've I've ever done. Like it was a, and and you feed off customers' feedback, you feed off team morale and team culture, and um, it was just a rolling ball of success after that. And something that uh, not only myself but everyone who spent a lot of time at Muse pride pride themselves on for people to go for people to stay with you for a few years and leave and want to tell people that you worked at Muse or you're a part of that team um, such a good feeling such a good feeling and I thought we've we've never made huge changes to the restaurant along the way um, we've always evolved it and always grown with it and the team um, the, the 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 long-standing core team that we have who have input in the in the restaurant as well a lot of input in the restaurant as well has always um um shaped shaped the restaurant and um it's been it's been a huge success story um but we got to a big hiccup in um we got to a big hiccup in 2018 where megan and i separated but um the good to come from that was we, we have Muse Kitchen at Keith Tullacuanery, which is an amazing um, European-inspired bistro down there. We had two very successful restaurants with a great name, and we could both continue our passions and and um, continue our careers and our love for it and still represent the name Muse, which meant so much to us as well. Last year was uh, an eventful year and difficult year for many in the industry and a lot of chefs jumped online to do cooking classes and um, all sorts of different things to stay connected with consumers and keep busy as well. But there was a moment that uh, I remember you did your salt-baked uh, pork belly that you have in the restaurant, um, which kind of took off online. Um, can, you, can you talk us through that dish? Because I think it's changed a lot of people's lives. <laughs> they, um, I'm getting a lot of. I'm still getting a lot of stuff. People wanting to see me and the kids doing another club quarantine and um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the the cooking tutorials. I need to I need to bring a little bit of it back because because uh, people really did enjoy it and it was great to see people trying the dishes at home. But uh, salt baked pork belly is one of my favorite one of my favorites. Um, and uh, the key is uh, you. Everyone who tells you the key has it has to be drying that skin. Um, so whatever condition you get, like you, you source the best pork belly you can, or you source, you source the best pork you can, the best cut you can, um, but drying it out. So if it comes wet packed in a in a vacuum packed bag or however you receive it, get it uncovered in your fridge um, and and let that skin dry and let that skin dry out as best as possible. Um, then I cover it in. Then I cover it in a nice, um, heavy amount of sea salt. Um, you can finely score it. I don't cut through the skin. If you do cut through the skin when you're scoring it, you'll still get great crackling, but you'll have the fat come up through the skin and, and bubble on top, and sometimes you'll get the, the protein blub will come up as well and give you little marks on the skin. So a general score or no score at all if you're happy with the big, the big bubbles on top. And then make sure you just blast your home oven as high as it goes 
um, you know, up to 240 if you can. Um, get it already charged. Have the pork at room temp. Um, out of the fridge at that stage, get it in there and don't have anything else in there. It's about having no moisture, as much dry heat in the oven as possible, I reckon. So no no baking vegetables in there at the time, no dessert in there. Um, smash, the, smash the pork in there and then leave it in there for as long as it takes to achieve a really nice bubbling, crisp crackle. Sometimes it takes 15 minutes, sometimes it takes 35 minutes, but let it go because usually those larger cuts of pork have still got a good chunk of time behind them to finish. So you're not going to overcook the pork, but you need that period of time to get the crackle. Once you've got it, I drop the oven right down, open the oven, even take the pork out and sit it on the bench for a second, bring your oven down to about 140 and then put the pork back in and then let it finish slowly. And at that point, you can put stuff in there. It's very hard. To, once you've got really good set crackle, it's very hard to lose it. You can put your veggies in there, put your dessert in there if you want um, and then cook it out till it's nice and tender. One of the elements that I found interesting as well was submerging the, the, meat, the meat side of things, not the skin um in in liquid to help it cook can you tell us about that yeah that's it that that you, you can you do you do and you you can you can do that and you don't have to do that either um so that's just another little it's another little safeguard to making sure you're getting a really really moist protein under that crackle so um once you've got once you've achieved the crackle you can fill the tray with a little bit of broth that can be whatever you're cooking if you're cooking an asian inspired dish do a lovely ginger shiitake mushroom broth in there and pour it right up to the side of the skin and then it's more of a gentle poach from that point on and then uh or you can continue to just dry roast it either way you've had uh, amazing success with the restaurant and a real connection to the growers of the region and and found a really beautiful life work balance as well what's your sort of tips to people to to ensuring that of getting the best out of your career but also the best out of that sort of balance um, oh, everyone's situation is different and whether they're a head chef or a restaurateur, um, but believing in, believing in the people under you is a big one for me. Um, when I first opened Muse, I was trying to do everything. When I was, so, I was so young and I was trying to do everything, I wouldn't let people have proper input on the menu. I, was, I would make sure that back then we were doing three types of bread for every diner that sat down, three little rolls, and I would do all the bread. I wouldn't let anyone touch the bread. The gnocchis and the pastas back then, I wouldn't let people touch at the start. Um, and I was running around like a bloody madman, you know. And, and then over time you start to um, trust people and um, promote people and um, and you give them more responsibility and then their achievements become higher and then they become more of an asset for you and then they give you time to do to continue to further the business and continue to further yourself personally and like that's been a big thing for me I've had um, my my head chef Mitch and my sous chef Jake have both been with me for just over six years now and um, a lot of my staff have been with me a long time and that has been a wonderful part. So leading by example for them um, and creating a good team culture is really important and um, I think that's been a part of me being able to enjoy all the bits and pieces that, that I want to be doing. I mean, I'm a bit of a daydreamer and I always have been and, like, I need I need sometimes Mitch and Jake to pull me into line if I get a little bit too carried away with ideas, <laughs> which is good as well. Like, um, and 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 um, also also not being a dictator as well, being okay to like 
Mitch will have Mitch, my head chef, will have a go at me in the kitchen if he thinks I'm not doing something right, and vice versa. And so it should be. It takes a big team to run a good, good kitchen or a good restaurant, and and everyone needs to be made accountable. And and I put things, I put things in, I do things in my life, and I have people around me that make me accountable, and that's really nice. A big thing that makes me accountable and keeps you keeps you honest is a vegetable garden. It's something that you, it's honestly it's something that you can't leave. Like if you think you can just disrespect it for a week or two and then go out and think things are going to be okay, no, it'll bloody make you accountable. You'll have more slugs and caterpillars out there, and and if you've forgotten to water it, so it's these things that keep you in check and they keep you in motion, and like those are important in life. Surround yourself with good people and and good um um yeah things that keep you in check. Oh, can I just say one more quick thing about that, about um, leading by example? I think one quick thing that I'd like to touch base with is is kitchen kitchen culture um, and understanding that if you are a head chef of a restaurant or a restaurateur, um, you are um, leading by example for the younger generation and there seems to be a bit of a sweep and change to the way we look and view our lives inside and outside of work and being healthy and all of these things and, and, and setting, good, um, setting good things in place for, for the younger generation and I think it is so important as a head chef or a restaurateur to, to know that you are influencing the younger generation, not just in the kitchen, but how you live your life. Um, um, listening to Jackie chat the other day on your In, in the Weeds podcast, um, talking about things like alcoholism and, and there's drugs and, and um, in some particular places. But if that's facilitated from the top, because people are looking up to you, if that's facilitated from the top, you are influencing them inside and outside of their workplace. So... The importance of, I think the importance of being a good role model, it stems so deep and it's so important for our industry for people to understand the depth and power of that. Um, when people come and work for me when they're young chefs, um, if they're 16 or they're 22 walking into the kitchen and they've spent 12 months with me, the thing that I want them to be doing is not worrying if they can go out and, and party and drink until three and who backs up the strongest. I want them to be talking about getting their own home or, or having their own vegetable garden. And that's what they are doing. Like two years after, 12 months or two years after being at Muse Restaurant, they're thinking they wanting to buy their own home or they're wanting to start and grow their own vegetables or something like that. You know, everyone's, everyone's going to go out and party and drink and everyone, but you don't need to be the one that they look up to for that or help facilitate that. I think it's really important that we all, that we start to think about that as much as some of the other big things in our industry at the moment. Troy, you're, you're an inspiration, mate, and it's always great to catch up with you. Uh, we've loved having you on The Crackling today and no doubt we'll catch up with you again soon and um, I'm very much looking forward to that. Thanks, Anthony. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.